are local authorities required to fund holidays to Florida for service users under the CARE Act 2014, looking at the case of BG and KG and Suffolk County Council, case reference 2022 EWCA Civ 1047. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hi, I'm Sean Davis, and I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers. Hi, I'm Ariana Kelly. I'm also a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers. We're going to consider this morning whether a holiday can be regarded as care and support under the Care Act um, by looking at the case of BG uh, and Suffolk County Council, um, which perhaps appropriately we've both been reading while on our holidays. Ariana, would you like to just summarise the facts of the case and also what, what was decided at first instance? So the case was about BG and KG. These were two brothers who were in their late 30s. Both of them had diagnoses of autism and a learning disability, both had epilepsy and both experienced significant anxieties. Both of them also had issues with night incontinence and KG had poor mobility and used a wheelchair due to his fibromyalgia. It was agreed between the family and local authority that both men required 24-hour support and both were considered to have capacity to take decisions as to their care. Both of them lived at home with their mother, uh, who was anonymized in the case as SQ. She cared for them during the day and her records also showed that she was up every night attending to them. She had some support from broader family, uh, specifically their stepfather, sister and brother-in-law, but these people all had a lot of other responsibilities in their own lives and SQ clearly did the vast majority of the care. Uh, very sadly, BG and KG had both suffered abuse when they had previously attended a day centre and felt that they could not be cared for by anyone other than their mother. Uh, this was not a point that was disputed by the local authority. About 10 years ago, from about 2011, KG and BG had started to receive direct payments, uh, which included access to the community by way of family outings and activity and family holidays. This was approved in the assessments of their needs and approved as their in their support plan as a direct payment. From about 2013, they also started to receive a respite budget specifically for holidays. And part of the purpose of this was to support them. Part of the purpose was also to support their mother uh, and to pay specifically for the costs of outings and activities in the community, including going to cafes, admission fees to different places, and memberships to things like the RSPB and the National Trust. This continued on uh, and the payments were increased over time, uh, going up to £3,000 annually for each brother. The family had used these to take a number of family holidays to Florida, which everyone had agreed was very beneficial to them and that they all really enjoyed. They were also getting direct payments, which ranged over time of about £150 to about £300 a week, which were used to meet their day-to-day -day activities and to support them having outings into the community. These are both very clearly recorded in both the needs assessments and care plans for a number of years from 2011 onwards and reaffirmed until about 2018. In 2018, their direct payments were cut quite significantly. Both BG and KG were reported to have declines in their mental health by their community nurse. However, their 2018 support plan continued to identify as having both of them, with both of them having needs to access the community with SQ support so that they could have new experiences and build confidence and trust. The care plan also identified that the direct payments were to be used for respite away from the family home, to use transport, and to have entrance fees and memberships paid for by the direct payment. There was a lot of support from mental health professionals who were involved with the family around them going on the broader trips, such as the Florida trips. 
what what their CPN wrote was that it would give them a break from the stress of being at home, where they feel that there are stressful letters and visits. And the family holidays were also seen as being very restorative for SQ. They noted that it got her away uh, from many of the activities that she had to undertake in normal life, and that they were having a long-term positive effect on her and meant that SQ was able to continue with her caring role over time. What the CPN wrote was the respite holiday has a therapeutic value in terms of allowing all to feel less distressed, to use it as a positive reinforcement to help with the need to change the negativity that has been present throughout their life as positive. The payments for the respite holiday were fully removed in 2019. The local authority found that the that SQ was meeting all of BG and KG's needs and again recorded that there were declines in their mental health as a result of cutting the direct payments and BG and KG being told that they couldn't use their direct payments to pay for food out during trips, which included trips to cafes, uh, which had been established as something in their care and support plans for quite some time. Throughout this period of time, they were both assessed as having needs to develop and maintain family and personal relationships, needs for support in making use of necessary facilities or services in the local community and recreational facilities. And while they had positive relationships with their families, they were found to have struggles making relationships in other settings. By the time we had gotten to 2020, the two brothers both had assessed eligible needs across a number of domains – All of their needs were being met by SQ, and the local authority had taken the decision to remove all funding, both for the holidays and for direct payments insofar as they would be used for accessing activities and events in the local community. So, Ariana, it sounds to me as though there was a a significant dispute between the family uh, and Suffolk County Council. Uh, And obviously, we know that that resulted in judicial review proceedings challenging Suffolk's decision. Um, And I'm just going to note in passing that there was an issue about the time of the decision and and the question of whether procedurally the the claim could proceed. and we're not going to dwell too much on that today because I think we we really want to get into the, the sort of the meat of the decision about Care Act powers. But ignoring for now the time point, what what did um, Mrs Justice Lang decide uh, on the first instance judicial review? Well, there were several points that were agreed as between the parties. The first is, uh, and the court accepted this and it was not challenged by the local authority, that the brothers did have needs around making use of necessary facilities and services in the local area, making use of recreational facilities and uh, recreational services. The court also accepted that recreational facilities and services aren't confined to the local area and may include a trip away from the home to access recreational facilities and services in another area. The council also agreed that there could be a need to provide a carer to support an individual to access recreational facilities, but not to pay for the cost of access to the facilities, entrance fees, or the transports to them. And the council submitted that there was no power to pay for what they termed to be universal costs. The first instance court did consider closely what the council could provide by way of care and support to meet the needs and noted that care and support isn't defined within the act. The the first instance court, and this was considered further in the Court of Appeal, considered that what the CARE Act is about is about providing care and support to the person with needs and support to the carer. The court found that support wasn't just a superfluous word, and support could include the provision of assistance to someone in need, including financial assistance to that person. And they uh, created an analogy as between support being provided to carers, which could be met by way of financial assistance, uh, and support being provided to the person, which again, the court didn't feel that there was any real distinction as between the two. 
It also accepted, and this was not a disputed point between the parties, that one possible way of meeting SQ's needs as a carer would be to provide her with the funding to take the entire family on holiday as a means of respite. So the short version from Mrs. Justice Lang was that she felt that there was actually a, quite a lot of flexibility under the CARE Act to provide support to people as a way of meeting needs. That didn't just have to be by, about providing a carer. It could in, include the provision of something that could be considered a universal need, such as going on a holiday or accessing a cafe, so long as that was required to meet the need of the person. The court also found that there was no plausible evidence of a diminution of needs over time, and thus the care plans and needs assessments going from 2011 onwards, which continually found a need for care and support around these areas, uh, continued to be the case because there was no real suggestion that their needs had gone down. If anything, their needs had gone up. Now, the council did not accept this decision and appealed it to the Court of Appeal. So, Sean, what did the Court of Appeal think about the whole thing? Well, the, the Court of Appeal judgment, for those that uh, want to read it uh, in full, the, the, the reference is 2022 EWCA Civ 1047. Um, in very short summary, the Court of Appeal agreed with the judge at first instance. So ground one before the Court of Appeal was the procedural point about time limits, um, and, and that was dismissed. The, the meat of the, the, the argument is in grounds two and three. Ground two um, concerned the question of whether a local authority had a power to provide financial support for recreational activities and holidays under Section 18. And ground three was a challenge to the judge's finding that Section 19 allowed an authority to provide um, financial support for those activities. Um, so really, there was a lot of, of um, alignment between grounds two and three. Uh, and what the Court of Appeal um, found, uh, and obviously it won't be surprising that the, the appeal, uh, Suffolk's appeal was dismissed, was that uh, there is a clear power, and uh, as reflected in sections 18 and 19 of the CARE Act, and supported by the care and support statutory guidance, to fund uh, recreational activities and holidays, including the, the costs of uh, actually getting entry to, to parks or, or going to a cafe or, or going on a holiday. And this was dealt with, particularly at paragraph 69 and 70 of the Court of Appeals judgment, specifically by reference to the Section 1 Care Act um, wellbeing duty, with the Court of Appeal emphasising the need to consider the particular circumstances of an individual individual and to ensure that the provision of care and support is tailored to, to their particular needs with the ultimate aim being to, for them to achieve the outcomes which matter to them uh, in the life which they lead. It's important to note that the words care and support were found to not mean the same as care and assistance uh, under the National Assistance Act. In other words, support has its own particular meaning and the meaning of support could be defined by reference to those well-being duties and powers and the need to identify specific outcomes which are important to an individual. So what we have from the Court of Appeal uh, really, for, for the first time, it is a very detailed discussion about the, the difference between the regime under the National Assistance Act um, and the regime under the Care Act. 
and the need to look uh, for a tailored and broad approach to the question of what support can be provided uh, and also an emphasis from the Court of Appeal on the uh, importance of individual autonomy uh, under Section 1 uh, and the need for individuals to, to have, to put it this way, buy-in in terms of, of what they want to achieve and how that can best be supported. So that's why I think, and, and um, I, I think Arianna will probably agree, this is a really significant decision. Uh, Arianna, obviously, this has got some significant implications, both for local authorities um, and for service users, um, who, who no doubt will perhaps take different things away from, from this judgment. Do you want to just summarise uh, some of the implications from the service user perspective? Sure. I, I think one of the key things for service users is going to be looking at this concept of what is a universal service and what is related to the person's needs. Um, certainly something I've seen a lot in my practice is a more categorical view from local authorities that we don't do things like pay for cinema tickets, pay for food when you're out. We don't pay for transportation. We don't do that use your PIP, use your ESA, use your benefits to pay for those sorts of things because these are just universal services. Um, I think this decision has really blown that idea out of the water in terms of saying that it's really much more specific to the individual. There's no such thing as something almost beyond the power of a local authority to do to uh, meet a need, save obviously a health service, a housing service, that sort of thing. But it is really just much more about what you need to meet your needs and what your needs actually are. If as a result of your needs, you do have a need to go to the cinema and you wouldn't be able to afford that otherwise, that's potentially something that could be assessed within the needs assessment, something that potentially could be done for you within the care plan. Um, one of the things that I think is also going to be quite interesting on this is people who have been asked to pay for activities like this out of their uh, the disability-related benefits and may have been taking disability-related expenditures for those sorts of payments. For many people, and, and certainly I've seen a lot of examples of this, there's an acceptance that, yes, perhaps this is something you pay for because it's something you need to do as a result of a disability, but you can pay with that for that with your own money. Now, as a service user, you're much better off having that in your care plan because the total amount of your care plan is capped in terms of what you can actually be charged for that. And if your care plan is more expansive, you're probably going to end up paying less. You actually have more disposable income for yourself to use the DREs on things that aren't necessarily assessed needs. So I think this is for people who may be having their care and support plans reviewed. I think it's a really important judgment to flag up and say, well, actually, wait a minute, this thing that you've been saying I need to pay for out of my own money Actually, that should be within the care plan, and that should be subject to the total charge that I can uh, that I can be lawfully charged. BG and KG had, um, according to the, the judgment, some some really quite persuasive evidence in support of the link between these activities and and their well being from from, for example, mental health professionals. 
How important do you think that sort of evidence is in terms of, of putting forward a case from a service user perspective that, that actually that the, these recreational activities are linked to, to the impairment, which gives rise to care and support needs? I think it's going to be massively important because I, I think there is, again, going to be a big question is, is this a need or a preference that the person has? And is this something that a person simply enjoys doing or is it something the person needs to do? Is this meeting a, something specifically arising out of the person's disability? Are they unable to pursue it as a result of the disability? And is it having that significant impact on their well-being? I think in this case, there was about an eight-year track record of showing a lot of evidence from social care professionals, from mental health professionals, from others, that they did need to be doing these sorts of things. And actually, the evidence showed when the, the direct payments were cut, there was a lot of evidence to suggest that their mental health and their well-being had really suffered as a result of that. So I, I think you're absolutely right in saying the evidence is quite compelling in this case. And it's probably something that local authorities will be looking at closely as to whether or not a person is going to the cinema because anyone would enjoy going to the cinema or whether they need to go to the cinema as a result of a, a need for care and support that they have. And from the local authority perspective, I'd imagine that there will be some real concerns about there being service users seeing this judgment as, as a sort of a green light to have uh, recreational activities and, and holidays funded uh, and potentially some concerns ab about resources uh, at a time when we all know that there's already um, what might be described as a, as a crisis in terms of, of social care funding. What uh, would you say are the, the, the sort of the, the key issues for local authorities to take from this judgment? Is a local authority going to be required to, to pay for a holiday to Florida for, for everyone who's got a care and support need? Well, I'm going to turn that question back around on you because I think you probably know as much as anyone out there about uh, what local authorities are and aren't compelled to do and the extent to which they can take their resources into account. I mean, do you think do you think it's that it has to be a holiday to Florida? Do you think, or do you think it's it's more nuanced than that? Well, there is um, there is case law about the relevance of, of resources, um, and there is also um, the the importance uh, of how the eligible need is is identified. So obviously, we know from the case of McDonald and, and Kensington and Chelsea that how the eligible need is defined. Um, although, of course, that comes with the health warning that it was a case under the National Assistance. Act. But how the need is defined um, is, of course, um, important in terms of um, how the need can then be met. So, for example, if, if the need is capable of being met in a number of different ways, um, at that point, applying Gloucester and Barry and, and McDonald, the local authority can take into account resources. If a service user is identified as having a need for a holiday to Florida, then there's going to be a need to provide, there's going to be a duty to provide the holiday to Florida. Florida. If the eligible need is defined differently, then there may be a range of ways that the need could be met. And, and that may um, allow local authorities to, to look at how the need can be met um, in a more cost effective manner. But obviously, that comes with the caveat that the care and support guidance, while it does endorse the position that resources can be taken into account, also is very clear that the question of value isn't just about lowest cost. And so the question of cost has to be balanced against the, the issue of
issue of well-being. So uh, to answer the, the, the um, slightly frivolous question, does, does everyone have the right to a holiday to Florida? The answer is, is almost certainly no. But from a local authority perspective, I would say that the key takeaway is that there is a need to look very carefully at flexible and bespoke provision that, that's very carefully tailored to the outcomes that a person wants to uh, achieve rather than a focus on what services are available or, or a somewhat inflexible approach to, um, you know, well, we don't pay for that because you can meet that from your welfare benefits. I think something we were both struck by as well, and I, I think both of us appreciating that we don't have every detail about this case, just what's in the reported judgment, is in some ways the lack of focus on sustaining SQ and her care role. I mean, one thing that comes out really clearly, particularly from the first instance judgment, is SQ was experiencing a lot of stress in her role. And I, I think it's it's not entirely surprising uh, in terms of the description of her being a full-time, 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year care for two people, both of whom were described as having 24-hour needs and night needs every night. And the question that I was asking myself is, why are they not doing more to help SQ to keep on in this role, particularly where the assessment of a local authority to date had been that no one else could care for BG and KG, and both of them had capacity to make that decision? I mean, can, can you see a, a, a broader end game in this, Sean, or do you... Do you think that this is perhaps a bit short-sighted on their part? I think that that perhaps underlines the, the, the sort of the bigger picture approach that, that I, I think the care and support statutory guidance is, is, is advocating that these should be decisions made on the basis of, of well-being in the round, as it were. Um, and perhaps one of the facets of well-being for, for BG and KG um, would be the sustainability of, of this arrangement. Um, and I think that theirs is a, a case that brings that in, into particularly sharp focus because of the background, which was that actually a different type of care arrangement had uh, at a day centre had um, unfortunately had had the the, the, the outcome of of them um, having been uh, abused and uh, no longer being able to to be cared for in that way. So really, there there, there are on on the facts as we know them very limited options. And so I absolutely agree that um, looking at the bigger picture um, and actually thinking about it from a cost position as well, the, the sustainability of the caring arrangement w- was very much um, obviously in accordance with the wishes of of the service users. But also financially, one would think to the advantage of of Suffolk in in terms of the relative cost of this arrangement versus an alternative, which, which might be considerably more expensive if if it involved professional care. And just say, I mean, I I think I've certainly seen, I know you've seen as well, cases where in the court protection, which obviously these these two gentlemen had capacity, uh, but in other cases where families have been sustaining these caring arrangements for. 30, 40, 50 years, and then something happens and the family is not able to do it. Often an an elderly parent becomes unwell. Sometimes people just can't cope with the stress. They go into hospital, whatever happens. And often the person is plunged into a very unwelcome care situation very quickly with no planning. um, And it goes very, very badly. It's it's not at all uncommon thing to see. And I think that was just something that that really did jump out at me where the local authority accepted that it did have a power to meet SQ's needs as a carer through the provision of the holiday. It seemed that 
there was strong evidence around uh, from all the professionals that that actually had worked pretty well in terms of sustaining the caring arrangement had been very positive for them. I was just not really seeing what their end game was here in terms of stopping that arrangement, which was keeping this entire situation sustainable for this family and was very much what the family wanted. But obviously I have to take on board, I don't have all of the background facts in relation to the case and I, I uh, don't see that. But there did seem to be quite a suggestion that this was on the basis of a general policy across the local authority rather than a bespoke decision taken that this was the wrong thing in this particular circumstance. And I, I think I, w- I would very much agree with what you're saying. Do you think then that the, the sort of the key message or one of the key messages from this case is that um, actually there is a very wide discretion in terms of what services a local authority can provide by way of support? Uh, and ultimately, it comes down to the quality of the assessment that the uh, taking into account of, of obviously that the service users uh, service users views and wishes uh, and also the evidence of, of a link between the, the service that that's being requested or, or that might be provided and the individual's well-being absolutely and I I think this is almost a, a getting back to basics around the care act is I think this is what we all thought it was going to be when it was rolled out through 2014 and 2015 um Going back through the statutory guidance, I sort of half remembered now pulled up one of the examples which was given of a positive way of flexibly using direct payments, which was offered in the guidance, was for a man who had needs around uh, emotional, uh, emotional and social well-being, personal relationships, and need to develop those, that direct payments could be used to fund his time with a personal trainer at a local gym in order to get him into that environment, which would be positive in terms of integrating him into the community. That, to me, seemed very much on all fours with saying, well, I'd like to use my direct payment to go to a cafe that I'm going to go to regularly, so I'm going to make those sorts of connections. And I, I think this would had always been what the plan was, was that we were going to get away from the model of this is just about a very defined set of services. And it's now actually much more a responsive thing to the individual of what would work for you in order to meet your needs. But that's, that's going to be so specific that in some ways, I think it's almost hard to draw a general principle from this case beyond it really just depends on the person and what works for them uh, and what their needs are, and what is a need uh, that is specifically related to the disability, rather than again just being a universal uh, use of of money, which would be unrelated to the disability. So, Ariana, I know that you're the queen of uh, charging um, law. What do you think uh, about the connection between this decision um, about local authority powers and duties to, to meet eligible needs in flexible and creative ways and the concept of disability-related expenditure for the purposes of, of charges um, for support under the CARE Act? I think disability-related expenditure is really interesting because there's actually not much case law on it. Most of the the uh, most of the, the work that ends up getting done around it ends up being with the ombudsman rather than anybody else. And after the Norfolk charging case, uh, now nearly two years ago, there was a lot of interest around DREs and or disability-related expenditures or DREs um, and going back over those in care plans. So I think that's something that's become much more highlighted for local authorities. And I think there have actually been a lot more formal decisions being taken following the Norfolk case as to what DREs were and weren't. Because I think prior to that, there was a lot of just automatic things of saying, well, you know, if you need to go to this alternative therapy, then we'll recognize that as a DRE, but we won't necessarily recognize other things. I think that there should be 
more of a query as to whether or not the things that people are using for their DREs actually belong within their care plan. Um, that doesn't, that, that's again, always going to depend on the individual circumstances. Uh, but I think if it's something that's recognized as a purchase that is being made because of a disability, then I, I think this question is really begged from this judgment of should that actually be recognized as a need rather than just a thing that a person is doing in order to meet their needs. Now, I think the other issue that's really often very fraught about this is around transportation. I mean, what's your take on this as to whether or not policies which oblige people to use their PIP mobility allowance to meet per transportation needs, do you think those can stand up to scrutiny after this judgment? Probably my initial view on that is is that any any sort of hard or blanket rules um, or policies which, which say that, for example, something always will or always won't be regarded as as a, a disability related expenditure or or as a a universal need in in the language that was used by Suffolk in the BG case are, are going to be vulnerable to to challenge because it's very difficult to see how those hard rules can can fit with this sort of autonomy, well-being uh, and flexible approach that the Court of Appeal was talking about. Ultimately, I think what the Court of Appeal was saying is, is that this is an individualised, bespoke decision um, based on a person's needs. And, and I find it quite difficult to see how that can fit with, with hard rules that, that something always will or always won't fall within a disability related expenditure or, or, or will always be a universal need. Having said that, I also think that there are some quite complicated decisions to be made around the interplay between care and support needs um, and welfare benefits, because of course, there are welfare benefits which are specifically tailored to meet the additional costs associated with disability. That there is a risk of someone getting double payment, as it were, if if they're receiving those disability benefits and also having the same, what might be regarded as the same needs met by a local authority um, under the Care Act. Uh, and so I, I think that there is some further discussion to be had about that. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it, it often will depend pretty significantly on what the disability related expenditures are being used for and how much, whether the person's being charged the, the maximum amount on this. But I think, is it right to say that our probably overall conclusion is, does the CARE Act require uh, holidays Florida is maybe? <laughs> it will all just depend on the circumstances in, in the case. I think it's the classic lawyer's answer, isn't it? <laughs> it depends on all the facts of the case. <laughs> but I, I think probably what we can say with some certainty is that the fact that something is, is uh, common to people with and without disabilities doesn't mean that it's not necessarily a need in an individual case. I think what we can say is the idea that because using a bus is something that may be considered a common expense by many, many people, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have a need to do it under the CARE Act. Similarly, because going to a cafe is a thing that's done by many, many people, that doesn't mean that you don't have a need to do it. You really have to dig down and consider why is this person doing it and why is it potentially a need rather than just a, a preference or a choice that they've made on a day-to-day on -day basis.
Yes, I, I think that's that's absolutely uh, the, one of the key points from it, and uh, I think we can link all of that back to the concept of of well being. Um, and if we want to make further links between health and social care, we could probably take it a step further and say that it fits in with the idea of social prescribing by the National Health Service, which can include things that people might regard as universal needs. So per- perhaps this all fits within the sort of broader scheme of, of closer alignment between health and social care. So that concludes our discussion uh, on the BG case. Um, No doubt there'll be further implications, which we may discuss at a later date. Um, And in the meantime, do please listen to other 39 podcasts. um, And thank you so much for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com.